is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. All right, if you got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the book of Colossians. We're going to be in the first chapter still, uh, verses 19 through 23 today. If you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you one. Down the middle uh, aisles of seats, middle row of seats, aisle, that's a column, I guess. Help me out. There are a couple Bibles stacked underneath, and you are welcome to have that Bible as your own, as you use it today. I think uh, the page number that, we're, that Colossians lands on is around 658, if I'm not, if I'm not wrong. Um, and as you're turning there, I'm going to go ahead and preface uh, the prayer that I'm going to give after we read to alert you to a couple people I want you to pray for. Will and Jacqueline uh, Rollins, who um, have been a part of our congregation for a little bit, uh, got a call this morning that his father was being uh, rushed to the hospital. I don't know that I don't remember the exact circumstances behind it. So let's remember them as they pray. His father lives a couple hours from here, I think, um, in the Virginia Beach area. Uh, I don't think he will uh, mind me saying this. Will is having surgery. Uh, will always in the back is having foot surgery uh, this week. He's been walking on a broken foot for a while. So we'll lift him up. And uh, Erica Gordon, our media uh, manager, director, has been feeling under the weather for a few weeks. And so we'll lift her up as well. Colossians chapter 1, verse 19 through 23. Let's read this. We're going to read it out loud together. And uh, you can read out of your Bibles, or if you don't want to do that, you can read on the screen following along with us, starting in verse 19, continuing through verse 23. Here we go. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, 
not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, even as we read your word, we're reminded that it's infallible, it's inerrant, it's inspired, it comes from you through men as the inspired word of God to us. And we honor it today. We honor it in its reading. Lord God, help us to honor it as we listen to it and help us to order our lives by it, that we would be obedient to it. You said in the Old Testament, and repeat it in, in the New, that you would rather us be obedient to your word than sacrifice goats and, and bulls and animals and stuff. So help us in a 21st century kind of a way to, to understand what you're saying to us in these words today. We're talking about relationships of sort today, and uh, perhaps there are people even sitting right now who uh, have relationships in their family, amongst friends that are estranged, that have tension in them. And I pray that you would give us um, strategy. Did you give us, did you give us unction? Did you give us the power of your Holy Spirit today to, to reconcile? And I got mostly we pray that those here who, under the sound of my voice, don't know Jesus, would be reconciled to him today. Lord, we thank you for the gathering of your church. We thank you for those who would want to be here but can't for whatever reason. We lift up, uh, very simply, uh, Will and Jacqueline and, and their dad. We lift up Will and his impending surgery today. We lift up Erica and uh, the discomfort that she's feeling and pray, God, you're healing. God, you are a healer. And we pray that you would glorify yourself in these that we've mentioned by name and that you uh, heal them. We thank you for your word today. And we pray that you would give us something that we've not had before. Change us in its hearing and bring us closer to Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. So who is Jesus? I asked that same question last week and we are continuing in this same passage of scripture, starting in verse 15, where Paul is helping us to see the preeminence or the supremacy of Jesus. And in that, we are hopefully learning a little bit about who Jesus is. And so starting in verse 15, all the way through 18, Paul taught us that Jesus is supreme in, a, in several different ways. And we defined this word supreme or actually the word preeminent in this way. Preeminent means that Jesus is superior. He's supreme, first in rank, dignity and importance. And so when we say that Jesus is preeminent, we're saying that he is uh, there is no one like him comparable in the cosmos. That he's the most significant being in the universe. And so in verses 15 through 18, Paul has taught us much about Christ and his supremacy. First, in relation to God, he says that he is the image of the invisible God. Now, this differs from what Genesis 1 says about us. It says that we were created, human beings were created in the image of God. But Paul is saying here that Jesus isn't just created in the image of God because he's not created. He is the exact image of God. The writer of Hebrews goes on to say he's the exact imprint of his nature. When we see or experience Jesus, we are experiencing God. He goes on to say that 
Jesus is supreme in his relation to creation because he is the creator and sustainer of all that we know. As, as little kids, we sing this song. He's got the whole world in his hands. Don't I mean, some of you all saying that, right? Don't leave me alone. Um, I mean, this is this verse in I think it was verse 16. He's, he's saying that, that Jesus literally has all that we know of the world and beyond our comprehension. He's got it in his hands. He's holding it. All together, he goes on to say that he, Jesus, is supreme. He's supreme. He's preeminent in the sense of his role as the head of the church. And here we see three things, uh, primarily in verse 18. Jesus established the church. In Matthew 16, he said, I will build my church. The gates of hell will not come against it. Added to that, he gives life to the church. And much like uh, your head on your body sort of rules your, your body and controls where it would go and what it does, Jesus is the ruler of his church. And as we continue in this passage today, we're going to learn that Jesus is also preeminent. He's supreme in regards to our need for salvation. And he does this by his work of reconciliation. So our theme today is reconciliation. Long word, but I mean, none of us in this room are really strangers to the idea, the concept of reconciliation. If you're human and you've been anywhere around other people in the world, then at some point you have come into a situation where, whether it's your spouse or your brother, sister, uh, a relative, a friend that you knew from school, uh, a chance meeting of someone somewhere in society, you, that that chance opportunity has borne the opportunity for discussion, conflict and possibly even. Um, I mean, just disaster happening in those relationships. And so whenever we're in relationship with other people, there's always the need for this idea, this concept of reconciliation, I would say that some of us are better at this than others, but what we all need but find difficulty in bringing about oftentimes in those relationships is reconciliation. And so every relationship that we enter has the potential for a disaster, and we can say that the, the source of uh, the conflict in our relationships that lead to disaster is the sin in all of us. And so a simple definition of reconciliation would be this. It means to be restored to right relationship. Whenever there's conflict in our relationships, we need for those conflicts to be restored. And that's what reconciliation is. I'm going to make three points from our text today that I think Paul is helping us to see. The first being that we need reconciliation. The first point is our need for reconciliation. No matter how you assess your own spiritual condition, I think most of us here would agree there's something wrong with the world. We can turn on the TV, look at the news. We can take your smartphone and, and Google stuff about what's going on in today's world. We can just notice how the weather is just all freaky from West Coast to East Coast and around the world. Look at your own heart and the things that come out of you, out of your mouth and how you address other people. There's all kinds of circumstances and situations about our world that reminds us that something has gone wrong with our world. The Bible's perspective of what's wrong in the world is this word called the fall. 
So in Genesis chapter one and two, we learn that God made a perfect world. And at the end of making it, he said that it was all very good in every respect. And then as the Bible goes on in Genesis three, we find out that sin enters the world because of the um, because of the persistence and the subtlety of, of Satan coming in the form of the serpent to deceive Eve, but also in the simple disobedience of Adam and Eve. They did what God said not to do. Sin entered the world. Their sin affected their relationship with God, but their sin also affected creation's existence and creation's existence with a perfect God. And so the Bible describes not only is man fallen, but all of creation is affected by sin and therefore is under a curse. This idea of a fallen world, a world where things aren't quite right, is really what Paul is touching on. It's the implication that he is introducing in this passage, especially in verse 20, where he says, Jesus reconciles all things through and to himself. Think about this with me. If, if God has to come in the form of Jesus and, and do something to make right all the things that are wrong, then the implication is that something is not right. If reconciliation is needed, that means something is wrong. And that's what Paul is getting at here. And so in verse, um, actually I'm going to go to a different, a different set, of, set of scriptures here. Paul describes really the, the, the present condition of our world rightly in a passage in Romans. I'm going to turn there real quick and uh, read to you what he's, what he's saying here. This is a, a well-known passage starting in Romans 8, uh, 19 through 22. He says, for creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to fertility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the sons of God. You know, what Paul is talking about here, he's talking about the suffering that the world is under right now. So the thing that's gone wrong with our world is manifested in terms of suffering. And he's saying... The world, the creation itself, everything that God has made is suffering because God has put it under a curse. And that curse is the result of this of of sin. And he says, almost like a woman in labor trying to push a child out is how creation is is feeling. It's groaning, waiting for a time when it will be set free from from bondage and decay because of the curse that it's been subjected under, and all of that because of the disobedience, the sin of man. You know, I put, this, I put this a different way. I think to sum up what Paul is saying here, he's saying that the change that the world needs is tied to the change that we need. If sin in our world comes to our world through the disobedience of, of men and women like us, then the change that the world needs also depends on us. That's what Paul is saying. And he says that reconciliation is yet to happen, but it's, but it's coming. Here's an illustration of this point. Um, there's, a, there's a popular story about a famous author, G.K. Chesterton. He's a great English writer. He wrote a book in 1910. It was called What's Wrong with the World? Um, I haven't read the book, but I hear it's a pretty popular book, although it's uh, pretty old. G.K. Chesterton is a prolific writer. 
He's a, a lay theologian. He's a philosopher. He's a, kind of a poet. But if you've read any of his stuff, I mean, it's, it's great prose. And he's well known even today for his writing. People quote him all the time. And so what happens in the story is the, the London Times sends out uh, an inquiry to all the famous authors of that time. Chesterton being one of them. And they asked a simple question. Uh, could you respond to us in regards to what's wrong with the world? And Chesterton, you know, being famous at the time, but also because he wrote this book with the same title, um, is one of the ones that they send the, the inquiry out to. And so he gets this, this inquiry and he breaks out a piece of paper. He starts writing, uh, dear sir, in regards to your inquiry on what's wrong with the world, here's my response. And he says this, I am. And then he signs it, yours sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. That, that was his response. Seriously. What's wrong with the world, G.K. Chesterton said. He said, I am. I am what's wrong with the world. Um, honestly, there's no telling if this story is actually true. Uh, you can Google it and you'll find it. But there's no source of the letter that he wrote, the inquiry from the London Times. But most people think it's an accurate depiction of what he would have said, given his perspective on the world at that time. More importantly, I think Chesterton accurately conveys the necessity for reconciliation for you and for me. It isn't just that something is wrong with the world. I think what he's getting at is apart from Jesus, we are wrong. Do you get that? Apart from Jesus, in God's eyes, we are wrong. In this passage, Paul is more specifically addressing the need, our need for reconciliation, the reconciliation that has to happen because of sin between God and and man. And so in verse 21, Paul says, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. And so Paul is here starting this contrast. He's helping us look back and see who we were. And then in the next verse, he's going to uh, sort of go forward and say, this is who you were, here's who you are now. And in verse 21, he uses some words that should shock you, okay, because he's talking about you. The first word that he uses is alienated, alienated. Alienated means uh, it speaks to the completeness of our separation from God. We're strangers to God, and we really want it to stay that way. To be alienated means that you are estranged from God and have no natural desire that would change that unless God would act upon it, giving you the gift of of faith and repentance to to pursue him as he has pursued you. And so to to say that we are alienated from God is to say that our need for reconciliation is at our heart level. This is how we feel toward God. Then Paul says that we are Hostile in mind. And this means that we're enemies of God. This says that our need for reconciliation is at the mind level, the way that we think toward God. And so our minds are we we have bad thoughts toward God. And then thirdly, he says that you do evil deeds. And so out of our fallen hearts and of our out of our fallen minds, it naturally leads to action. I'm reminded of Proverbs 23, 7. Uh, In the King James Version, I mean, who quotes the King James anymore? I'm going to do it. This is a historic moment for me. Um, King James 23, 7, Proverbs. It says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. 
as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So what the, the writer of Proverbs was conveying is there's a connection between what I think and how I feel and, and the resulting action that comes from me based upon all those things. And so here's what Paul is saying. Our actions aren't pretty. That's what he's saying. He actually uses the word evil. I mean, would you describe yourself and uh, the, the intentions of your, your thoughts and your emotions as being evil? Well, that was, that's what Paul is doing in these verses here. And it's hard for us to grasp that about ourselves. But what he's saying here by saying that we do evil deeds is he's saying you really are opposed to God in, in every way. And the, the fact of the matter is God can, do, God can have nothing to do with evil. And so to say that we are doing evil deeds says that our need for reconciliation is at the level of our actions. It's the way that we act toward God. And so what we see here in this, this verse, we're separated from God because of our heart, our sinful heart. We're separated from God because of our sinful thoughts. We're separated from God because of our sinful deeds. And what we need is reconciliation. We need reconciliation and we need it because we're not inclined to be reconciled unless, that is, God the Holy Spirit acts upon us. The God the Holy Spirit is, has to remove the veil of sin from us, gift us with this, this, this beauty of, of who God is and what he's come to do until we see who we really are and repent of it. So the first um, thing that I wanted you to see was, was simply... That we need reconciliation. The second thing, second thing that I think Paul shows us here is the means of reconciliation. How does Jesus reconcile us to God? And the means by which Jesus does that is the incarnation and his atonement. We're going to get a little theological for a couple of minutes. And so buckle your seatbelts. Incarnation and atonement. Okay, incarnation means in flesh. It's a Latin phrase. It's a doctrine whereby God, who is eternal and spirit, condescends from his heavenly throne and incarnates. He make, puts himself in flesh in the person of Jesus. We see this in John chapter 1, verse 1, and John chapter 1, verse 14. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things that were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Skipping down to verse 14, John writes, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And then as John keeps going in verse 17, he he tells us who this grace and truth is. He says, for the law was given through Moses. He says, grace, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so the gospel writer, John, is is giving us this picture of Jesus, who he's calling the word, who existed in eternity with God. He's saying he was God. And he reveals that this guy that comes with grace and truth is actually Jesus. That's the essence of the incarnation. The one who is the second member of the Trinity, who used to be face to face with God, has lowered himself to become a man. To put on our skin the man Jesus Christ. And so incarnation really is where Paul starts here in this passage. And he does that in verse 19. So we got to keep in mind here, we're still talking about the preeminence of Christ. We're still talking in a passage about how Christ is preeminent. 
in the cosmos, but also over our lives. That's the context that Paul is giving us this. And so he's declaring in verse 19 that Jesus is all the fullness of God. Jesus in his in his flesh, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And what he's saying here in essence is. In in its complete totality, Jesus is God. All of it dwells in him. There's nothing lacking. Although he's a man, an eternal God become man, all of God is dwelling in him. And this word dwell uh, has a, has a, a pretty, pretty neat meaning. It's saying that in Jesus divinity, all of it settled down or became a, it took up a residence in in his person. It's like. Um, if, if we could, like, put the glory of God in, uh, in a box and God just lowered it, lowered it, lowered it, lowered it, and he just, like, made Jesus eat it. I mean, that, that's a, a weird analogy. That's what came to my mind. But it's saying he, he, he has all of this inside of him. There's nothing lacking. He is God, although he is a man. And then in verse 22 Jesus, uh, Paul emphasizes this idea of the humanity of Jesus by using this phrase, the body of flesh. And so the incarnation declares that Jesus is completely is, is completely man, but he's also completely God. And here's why this is important. Here's why this is important. God becoming a man is is really essential to the message of salvation. Simply put, Jesus must be a man to be a satisfactory representative for us. Think of it this way. Adam sinned, and because Adam was our representative, we all sin. We're born into sin because of Adam. And so in order to escape the wrath of God, a man has to completely be obedient to God and his law. And there's no man since Adam that has been able to be completely obedient to God. And so God himself comes in the form of Jesus, and he's God, but he's also man. Because it would take God to be able to appease the wrath of God. No man is, has the ability to do that. And so Jesus comes both as God and as man. Both are necessary for us to be reconciled to God. The second idea is the atonement. And the atonement is this beautiful picture that the Old Testament gives us of slaughter and blood and all kind of um, really death. Um, Leviticus 16 is where you would go to find out about the atonement. The word simply means it means to make amends or to right a wrong. And Leviticus 16 shows us this picture where uh, God God tells Moses, uh, tell Aaron not to come into my presence anymore, uh, but only do it once a year. And when he does it, he has to wash his body. He has to put special linen garb on and he has to take a bull, slaughter it and take its blood and, and, and sprinkle it seven times in the uh, in the Holy of Holies on the Ark of the Covenant and on the mercy seat to uh, to appease the wrath of God for himself. And then he's to take two goats. Uh, they're, they're to be one year old and as as spotless as they can be. And he's to cast lots. OK, so he's basically throwing craps and he's going to decide one goat is going to get slaughtered. The other is going to be a scapegoat. And so the goat that he that, that the lot falls on to be um, sacrificed, he's going to 
sacrifice that animal. He's going to take its blood and he's going to confess the, the, the sins of all the people of Israel over the, the scapegoat and the goat that's killed and, and sacrificed. He's going to take the blood and splatter it over the Ark of the Covenant and over the mercy seat. And thereby he would appease the, the wrath of God for the sins of the people. Two goats, one is sacrificed, one is allowed to, to leave bearing the sins of the people. And that goat was actually cast outside of the camp away from all the people. And that really is the picture that Paul is giving us here uh, in, in this passage of scripture here. And so in this text, Paul proclaims the death of Jesus on the cross as a substitute for us. Again, as we back up to verse 20, he makes clear that the reconciliation and peace are accomplished. Listen to these words by the blood of his cross. He's talking about a sacrifice that's happened to appease the wrath of God. And in verse 22, Paul writes, and you, he is now reconciled in his body, in his body of flesh by his death. Jesus is doing two things for us. He's actually serving as a as a priest and mediator between us and God. So he is that high priest that's gone in bringing a sacrifice so that those who are sinful can be forgiven, can be cleansed, and the wrath of God can escape them and be put on someone else. But also, Jesus is serving as a sacrifice himself. He gives himself as a sacrifice for us by dying his, a death, a fitful death on the cross in our place for our sin. And this is the significance of the blood. I mean, have you ever noticed there's lots of blood going on, especially in the Old Testament in the Bible? The blood is what actually cleanses you from your sin and forgives you. So when we take communion today, remember, it's Jesus' blood that forgives you of your sin. It's this picture carried through from the Old Testament that we see portrayed in the New. Jesus' blood forgives you of your sin and cleanses you. That's why they sprinkled it on all the elements in the Holy of Holies. And so Jesus, I mean, he didn't die any death. He just didn't die for, for any death. His death was a special death. It was a death that was for you. It was a death that reconciles a fallen world and sinners back to God, much like the Old Testament sacrifice, sacrificial system of an animal, a perfect animal being taken, its, its blood being slaughtered, and sprinkled on the elements of God and the Holy of Holies. And then one being allowed to be released, it's the same picture of, of Jesus sacrificing himself in your place and his blood being spilled on that cross so that you would be forgiven. God's wrath would be appeased. You would not be punished for it. It would be placed on Jesus and his blood spilled on that cross would be given for your forgiveness and for your cleansing. And that's a beautiful picture. I like how Paul sort of gives us a picture of this with different words in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19. He says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of, of reconciliation. And so our, our reconciliation has two purposes. First, we see that God, God through Jesus reconciles us to him 
But there's this reciprocal action that's as we are being reconciled to God by the blood of his cross, we are also entrusted to go out and help others to be reconciled also back to God. And so the third thing that Paul conveys to us here is that reconciliation has a purpose. Reconciliation has a purpose, and this is the result of, of reconciliation. And he gives us this in Colossians chapter 1, 22, uh, 21 and 20, uh, 22. So we're going to read these out, out loud together. Read these out loud with me together. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Paul presents a strong contrast, who you were before Christ, before you trusted in Jesus, and then who you are after Christ, after trusting in Jesus. And as if he were saying to all of us in this room, this is who you were, but by the blood of Jesus' cross, this is who he's now declaring you to be. And I sort of created a chart here to show you before Christ. Verse 21 says that we're alienated from God. And we learned a few minutes ago, alienated means we were estranged from God. Not because we had to be, because in the hardness of our heart, we actually choose to be. And unless the Holy Spirit comes and acts on us, we don't choose God. But he says after Christ, we're reconciled to God. And that by Jesus' blood of his cross. Before Christ, we're hostile in mind. Our, our minds think such that our thoughts make us enemies of, of the one true God. But after Christ, this beautiful thing that God does for us is God sees us not as we are, but he sees us as Jesus is. He sees us holy and blameless before him. And lastly, before Christ, verse 21 says that we're doing evil deeds. Out of the fallenness of our thoughts and the fallenness of our heart comes our evil actions. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. If you think evil thoughts, those are going to get into your emotions and your feelings, and you're going to act out. But Paul says, Jesus comes. The Holy Spirit comes upon us, makes us aware there's a God. He grants us faith and repentance. There's this picture of the reconciliation of God happening. And so after Christ, he considers us as Jesus is above reproach before God. I think there's two things that um, that two phrases that really convey what's happening here in the, the result of reconciliation. The first thing is um, we have a new relationship with God. That really is what Paul's describing here. In this chart, we have a new relationship with God. There's the before Christ us and then there's the after Christ us. It doesn't mean that you don't have sin in your life. It doesn't mean that you're that you're completely perfect. But it does mean that Jesus is serving as your mediator. He's your high priest constantly going before the holy of holies. And because his blood is because he's been the perfect sacrifice, he's constantly um, Sprinkling the blood of his cross over your sin, forgiving you and cleansing you. First John uh, chapter one, uh, one nine says. Um, I'm going to turn there. Somebody read. This isn't even in my notes. I don't even know where I'm going here. But somebody else, somebody obviously needs it. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what's happening here. 
Okay, Jesus is coming as our high priest. We sin, and if we confess our sin, he's forgiving us and cleansing us. And it's this this Old Testament picture of an animal being slaughtered and its blood being spilt. And that all because of Jesus. And so we have a new standing as a direct result of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And that's because of the redemptive work of Jesus. You know, the cross truly is a pivotal point in, in all of history. I mean, it changes everything. Okay, it's like a dividing line in your life where before you uh, you are alienated from God, you're hostile in your mind and you're doing evil deeds because you want to. And then Christ comes. He makes himself um, he makes you aware of, of him by his spirit and he totally changes your your whole persona. And the, the work of Christ on the cross is whereby in your sin, you are mostly deserving of God's wrath to be poured out on you. On the cross, God pours out his wrath on Jesus. He pours out his wrath on Jesus. And that really is the gospel. That's the gospel. It's the good news that you don't have to die in your sin. Christ has died for you. So the second thing I think is the result of our reconciliation is this idea of a new way of living, a new way of living. Paul continues this thought in verse 23. Verse 23, he says these words, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. And so here is the condition for salvation. He says we got to continue in our faith. Paul is not expressing doubt here. In some of your translations of the Bible, you could read this as as him um, saying that that the if is conditional and there's an opportunity for you to lose your faith and to lose your salvation. And so really what Paul is doing here is he's encouraging the Colossians. He's going back to this idea in chapter one, verse five, where he says, you really have. Um, heard the word of the truth, the gospel, and it's awakened faith in you toward Christ and giving you love for other people. And so here he's actually encouraging them. He's saying, I want to encourage you. You've believed in the gospel. Continue, continue to be steadfast. Don't, don't be wobbling back and forth, but be stable in regards to what you believe about the gospel. And so Paul is calling on the Colossians to continue to build their lives on the foundation of the gospel message and to not be swayed by other teachings. Only the gospel can provide full assurance for for our reconciliation. If we build our lives on anything else, then it would be evidence that they've not understood the gospel message. Let me illustrate this with with this story. There's There's a story of a young a young boy. He's a rebellious boy and a father who's kind of domineering. And they were at odds with each other and they were they had so much contention between them that they could not even say a word in regards to anything, whether it was school, homework, how he could drive the car, who his friends were, extracurricular activities. Everything that ever came up in their lives was really a a contentious, contentious subject that led into an argument. And so the father, desperate to to restore his relationship with his son, um, asked his son, would be would he be willing to go to. Uh, a trip to the mountains with him. And so the son said, yeah, I'll go. And so they went about two or 300 miles away. And uh, in the course of uh, just roughing it in the mountains, they spent a whole week there and they had a little bit of food. 
everything they had was on the backs in their backpacks. And, uh, you know, they're in the mountains. And so uh, they're sleeping out under the stars in the beauty of the night. Um, they're uh, eating the little food they had, but then they had to go hunting. They had to go and go to go uh, stream through uh, storm through streams and get water. Um, they're they're roughing it, really. And in the midst of this, what 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 there's a transition that happened in this estranged relationship. You know, at first they were arguing and, and just the same old tit tat and, and going back and forth. But all of a sudden, their hearts for each other changed and they started talking. And they talked and they talked and they talked and they realized that all the things they had against each other were just, were just simple and petty. And a miracle really happened on that mountain such that when they went back to where they lived, um, th- their whole relationship was different. They were, it, was a, it was as if a different father had a different son toward each other. Does that mean, it doesn't mean that their relationship uh, was completely docile and they didn't have arguments. But for the most part, the enmity that they shared with each other and that they couldn't get past totally dissolved. And so uh, one of the things that they did was when they when they would sometimes come into to arguments, you know, just as as father and son, they would say to each other, remember the mountain. Remember how life was on the mountain, that thing that happened in us that really changed our relationship. And as as we think about takeaways from this, this idea of reconciliation, I think one of the takeaways for us in this passage is Paul is trying to get us to remember the gospel. OK, much like a father and son who were at odds with each other and needed to be reconciled. Paul is reminding the Colossians and he's reminding us to remember the gospel, to remember the gospel. He wants them to reflect back on why it was that they believed the message that Epaphras gave to them. Why it was that they they trusted the, the message of good news that he brought about Jesus. Why it was that they their hearts were changed and they were inclined to 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 believe the message of truth, that it gave them faith in Jesus and they started loving each other. He wanted them to remember the gospel. He was also challenging them that when they were tempted to think that there was a better way to be reconciled, that they would remember the gospel. I think he was trying to get them to challenging them, maybe even encouraging them that when false teachers and all the things in our society were pulling them to believe something different than what he had taught them in the message of the gospel, that they would remember the message of the gospel that he had brought them, that they would remember the gospel. I think that Paul was challenging them that when they themselves were tempted to think that they needed something else to make themselves right with God, that they were trying to add to the message of the gospel, that they would remember the simple message of Jesus and him crucified, the blood of his cross shed on that rugged tree in their place for their sin. Now, Paul is essentially reminding them. He's, he's, he's like saying, hey, like he's talking to, to one of you. Uh, I mean, you you could never have worked your own way toward God. God had to come to you by the Holy Spirit and make you known to him. He awakened you by faith. He take he took you when you were alienated from from him and when your mind was hostile toward him and you were doing evil deeds and and he died on the cross for you. So he's asking, he's challenging them. Don't ever forget that. Don't forget what God has done for you through Jesus. And don't believe in anything that that deviates you from the centrality of the cross. 
There's no human work that can save you. Only Jesus can save you and sanctify you and that forever. So that's the first thing I think that we should take away from this, this passage. The second thing is, is this. I think that we have the challenge of repenting from all those ways that, that the things around us cause us to deviate from the gospel and from, and from Jesus himself. And in that, I'm saying that the Colossians aren't the only ones that need to be reminded. I think some of the things that, that we have in our faith, communion, uh, baptism, the sacraments that give us pictures of what God has done for us are there to remind us constantly of what God is doing in our midst. And here Paul is saying, uh, be reminded and don't um, and repent when you are when you find yourself de- deviating from what God has done for you. You know, we live in an age where there's a lot of things in our lives and in the world around us that pulls us away from this idea of the centrality of the gospel, the preeminence of Christ in our lives and in in, in all things. And so Paul's words remind us not only where we came from, but that God saved us through Christ. And the gospel message is you were dead. I mean, a, a dead person is dead, but God made you alive because he saved you by your faith that he gives you. And so ask yourself this, what am I adding? What am I adding to my faith to make to to make it seem like God is accepting me more? What is it that someone, some man around me has convinced me of that I need to do to feel more complete in my faith? Where uh, what is drawing you away from the gospel? And I think Paul is saying to us, be reminded through the death of Christ that you're holy and blameless before God. And that he sees you as he sees Jesus, perfect, spotless, blameless. Repent of deviating from Jesus and his gospel. And, and thirdly, I would, I would just say this. And we, we always have a mixed crowd here. Perhaps you are still um, struggling through this idea of Jesus and, and God. And what you're supposed to do with Christianity and faith. And I think Paul would simply say here to all of us, to, to you especially, if you're struggling with Christianity, is, is just simply be reconciled to God. We're reconciled, we're reconciled to God by trusting in Jesus. The Bible conveys that Jesus existed from eternity, that he was incarnated, became flesh in a man, that he grew up to be obedient to God to the point of death on a cross. And that, that death that Jesus died on the cross was for those people like you and I who are estranged from God, who think bad thoughts in our mind, who, and do, who do evil deeds um, by our actions. And by the blood of his cross, his blood spilled in, in hands that had nails in them and feet that had nails in them, that blood reconciles you to God. And so the way that you reconcile yourself to God is, is, is simply through prayer. Just asking God, the Holy Spirit, to reveal to you who Jesus is, repenting of your sins, telling him all the ways that you're sorry for the way you've sinned and receiving him. So who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? Is he preeminent? Is he supreme? Are you still alienated from him? Think about that. Let's pray. Lord God, we, uh, 
We honor you today. We thank you that what your word says about you is true. That Jesus, you came from heaven to earth to make a way for us to be in relationship with God. And what a tall feat that was. That a God who created the world will become a man will become like one of his creation and would love us so that he would submit himself to punishment on a cross so Lord we thank you for this picture of both the wrath of God being appeased by your death on the cross but more so we thank you for your love you demonstrated for us love on the cross I love that's unexplainable. We don't know why you did it, but we're glad you did. Lord, I pray especially for those here today who are struggling with concepts of Christianity or, or even still trying to figure out who Jesus is in their own life and what it might mean for them. Holy Spirit, would you give them a revelation of Jesus? Would you show his preeminence, how supreme he is? in relation to God the Father over creation because he sustains it over our our lives in the church would you show us all Lord God this beautiful picture of all of us who are estranged from God because of the sin in our lives and how Jesus comes and reconciles us by his cross a bloody cross like an animal being led to slaughter we thank you for your cross Jesus you didn't have to do it but you did and for that we're grateful in Jesus name we all pray amen amen